don't give it like a the podcast platform of the finalist by Leopold Lambert. Today, the Black Panther struggle against the American politics of health with Alan Nelson. Hello everyone, today my guest is uh, Alandra Nielsen, who is a professor of sociology in, uh, in, at Columbia University in New York uh, and the director of the Institute for Research on Women, Gender and Sexuality, also at Columbia University. Uh, and she's the author of a book that we're going to talk about today, which is, uh, uh, it is entitled Body and Soul, uh, The Black Panther Party and the Fight Against Medical Discrimination. So uh, we're going to talk about this historical uh, era that uh, mostly at the end of the 60s and, uh, and into the 70s as well. Um, hello, hello, Alondra. Hello, Leopold. <laughs> thank you for having me. No, thank you for accepting to talk with me, uh, especially at, at uh, the end of the semester like that. I know, I know it's a bit tough, but uh, we'll, we'll make the best out of it. Um, so maybe to jump right into the topic, uh, I would like to ask you to introduce a sort of concept that you, that you uh, introduced at the very beginning of the mm -hmm. book. Uh, that is the concept of social health, and um, I think that would be a good way to 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 introduce the topic itself. Great. Okay. So, social health is the concept I use that kind of encapsulates how the Black Panther Party's thought about health and well-being. Um, it comes in part from the World Health Organization, who had a broad definition of health that the Black Panther Party borrowed and used kind of um, a paraphrase of in their newspaper to ways to talk about health. And they understood health as being um, not just the um, absence of infirmity, but also having a full kind of a fullness, a fulsomeness of, um, you know, economic, spiritual, bodily, and social health. Um, and so I kind of pick that up from the WHO and from the Black Panthers. And in particular, I use it to talk about the way that the Black Panthers understood health as a social phenomenon. And so uh, I think, you know, we can think of it on two scales. So on the one hand, um, I argue and show that the Black Panther Party um, understood that health was just not about whether or not your body was sick. It was about um, about the health. They placed health in a kind of social framework. So it was about whether or not you lived in a well or health or ill society. And obviously, as um, left activists, they thought that we lived in an ill society, a society that was overrun with economic oppression and um, uh, racist oppression and racial racial violence. Um, and they also understood that if that social setting couldn't be well, then it would be difficult for individual bodies to be healthy. Um, they also thought about health as being a kind of community, a community kind of way of being. Um, so uh, they wanted to, they were both interested in helping individual people to be healthy, but they were interested in people being healthy in their settings, right? So they linked health to whether or not there were children were exposed to lead poisoning, whether or not there were sort of vermin and these sorts of things, and whether or not people had good um, food access to healthy food, access to good housing, and these sorts of things. So health for them was the kind of absolute opposite of um, a kind of laboratory way of thinking about, you know, a bench science way of looking at a cellular mechanism and thinking about whether or not that's pathological or healthy, right? For them, it was about everything else, you know, uh, around that. I see. 
Uh, and I suppose maybe to, to put uh, uh, a little bit in perspective the context in which, uh, in which those, uh, this uh, political and social struggle is, uh, is, was implementing itself, uh, maybe we should talk about the idea that, um, that is uh, maybe I would say the, almost the axiom of your research, which mm. is that we're, we're uh, situated within a, 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 mo- a sort of modern social contract where uh, their, their health management is very much their uh, part of the contract that, that is um, at the core of, of society. But obviously... Uh, what uh, your book and uh, uh, and actually even uh, the observation of, of things, uh, the way things are happening today, especially mm-hmm. in a country mm-hmm. like the United States, mm-hmm. is the fact that uh, most of the time this uh, healthcare is not very much is, is extremely discriminatory. Yes, yes. Socially and racially. And, yes, yes. Um, and also in the U.S., we also see uh, g- genderly. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, um, so. Uh, as, as there's a, there's two. It's it's very very interesting how in the book you you note um, how there's two ways of maybe uh, two main means that the Black Panthers would would uh, pro- would resist to this discriminatory uh, healthcare, mm-hmm. which is one uh, uh, what you would maybe think about immediately, which is uh, the idea that. Uh, if the state is not going to provide healthcare, mm-hmm. then we will provide healthcare. So there's the creation of clinics, and we're going to talk about that. But also, there's uh, another aspect of it that is uh, more uh, what you call what you call the uh, politics of knowledge, mm-hmm. uh, which actually goes further than that, and also uh, uh, provide provide information to uh, to the community, mm-hmm. to the African American community, uh, that. Um, to defend themselves against uh, what you call medicalization of of uh, of, um, uh, of their own body. So, mm-hmm. could you maybe tell us a bit more about that? Sure. Um, so, I guess the, the we'll start with the, the your context question. I mean, sure, I think what's sure. so um, interesting about telling the story about the Black Panther Party is that we usually think about the Black Panther Party, or, or some have, and you know, certainly in the public sphere often because the party's been so demonized, but also even some historians and um, social uh, social scientists who study social movements think about the Black Panther Party as being the decline of the civil rights movement or as being sort of the bad, you know, when, when um, previously sort of sympathetic black politics, black freedom politics sort of goes into decline. Um, and actually what it shows us by looking at the health activism is that it, the Black Panther Party is really responding to a pretty profound transformation um, in the social contract and, and, the, and, and is really, I think, presciently, presciently um, tapped into uh, what's going to be a quick decline of the social welfare state in the United States. And so I think, you know, we think about the Black Panthers and, and other sorts of black radical organizations of the late 60s and 1970s as perhaps not appreciating the advances of the civil rights movement of the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act. And But I think what another way or a better way of thinking of it is that they understood that those legal advances um, didn't forestall the diminution of the social contract, right? So you could still have the expansion of electoral politics and voting rights for communities who had been excluded for them from them um, previously because of uh, racial apartheid, particularly in the South in the U.S. But that didn't necessarily in- mean that they that the state was going to respond um, or that the social contract re- included them in a kind of profound way. Um, 
And so I think that's one, that's a kind of bigger, you know, sort of political philosophy, political theory of way of thinking about the Panthers. That's outside of how we usually think of them as a kind of background context. So I would say that to start. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so then when we switch to think about the health in particular, you know, I write in the book about um, uh, the, the, the fact that the Black Panther Party um, actually updates their founding 10-point platform. Uh, so the original platform is in October 1966 when the party's founded by Bobby Seale and Huey Newton. And then there's a revision in March of 1972. And in this March of 1972 revision, they add a new point six, which um, demands uh, uh, free health care for all black and oppressed people. And the Panthers obviously were a Marxist-Leninist organization, so um, they were certainly asking for free health care for black people, but oppressed people would have been anybody under the kind of boot of capitalist exploitation. So that was, they were asking for free health care, effectively for universal health care. Um, and so that is about kind of the, the first piece about the provision of health care um, that you were suggesting, Leopold. But the second piece of that Um, number six, uh, that point number six on the revised 10-point platform is that they ask for access to medical, advanced medical and scientific information, which to me is interesting on so many levels, but it's interesting in thinking about today the debates around paywalls on scientific papers that sort of in the U.S., um, scientific research that's done and funded by the NSF or the NIH that then, and all of the research findings are then locked behind these paywalls and, and, you know, taxpayers have paid a lot for them. And so it strikes me as a similar kind of assertion and then the last point of this point six um, in the new platform is that because they want to be able to provide themselves with information and their own scientific kind of analysis and these sorts of things. And so for me, that's that's when I knew that the Panthers were not just about handouts or give me like they weren't just like the state should give us things, although, mm-hmm. you know, as. Marxist-Leninists, they believe that there were things that the state was supposed to do, including providing health care, not only because it goes to a lot, not only because it was cognizant with um, their kind of Marxist politics, but because it's been a longstanding part of the social contract um, for hundreds of years, as you suggested. But also they recognize in this point six and underscore that they need to be involved both in and understanding the circulation of scientific knowledge and then arming themselves to sort of critique and challenge it. And so that's what I think is, um, I think could be easily, you know, skipped over about what the Panthers were asking for if we're not careful. So as I describe in the book, the Panthers were engaged in, um, on the one hand, um, serving black communities in ways in which they were underserved regard to, with regard to effectively very basic health care. In some instances, some instances it was more advanced, in some instances it was just kind of triage, you know, and, and trying to sort of get people to, to other places where they could get the help that they needed. But they were also importantly engaged in what I call medical self-defense. So we think of, so the original founding name of the Black Panther Party is the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, and that last piece of the name falls off, after, you know, a little while after the Panthers are founded and they just become the Black Panther Party. But the self-defense piece can be extended to the realm of medical discrimination and that they, that they, they were defending themselves not only against police harassment in the early founding of the party, but eventually by the time you get to 1970, 71, 72, again, against forms of medicine that were, or forms of scientific or biomedical research that might cause harm. And and so I wanted to show these two aspects in part because they were true, um, but also because they reflect both the complexity and I think the sophistication of the Black Panther Party as health activists. It was a pretty, um, uh, you know, a lot of other kind of health activist work at this time was doing mostly the former, was doing mostly service. So if we think about, well, I mean, maybe not the women's health movement, which was also engaged in um, 
knowledge making politics, particularly around the birth control pill and all the other forms of kind of gynecological knowledge. But so we would say they were engaged in those debates as well. But it's really when we get to the 80s and we think about things, organizations like ACT UP, that we really start to think about activists as being engaged in challenging knowledge, producing knowledge, doing mm -hmm. their own research projects and these sorts of things. And so um, you know, I think it's important not only to put the Panthers, to reconfigure the Panthers and reframe the Panthers and how we think about the civil rights movement, but also in how we think about health movements, you know, going back to ACT UP of the, you know, the 80s, the women's health movement of the 70s up to the present. Mm -hmm. Well, and uh, I'm glad you brought up uh, the, the work of, uh, the activist work of ACT UP, because uh, I think there's a lot of similarities mm -hmm. in how, uh, in the 70s, uh, you, in your book, describing how uh, this uh, disease, the sickle cell mania, uh, was uh, was a, um, a blatant uh, uh, abandonment of of their of the state health state funded state funded healthcare uh, upon their African American community, and we can see a lot of similarities with uh, what happened with uh, the ads ads in their in their in, in the homosexual community mm -hmm. in, in the eighties. Mm -hmm. So it's it's interesting to see how there seems to be a very acute acute awareness of of. Uh, of how uh, this sort of abandonment is uh, as violent as uh, mm -hmm. what may come from uh, uh, the, the, the police violence in a more uh, spectacular way, and that usually we tend to focus a little bit more on the spectacular. And I, 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 you have a quote of the opening of the Bobby Seale People's Free Health Clinic of the Black Panthers in um, in uh, seventy one. Is that is that in Auckland? Uh, it's in Berkeley, actually. In Berkeley, okay. yeah. So in the Bay Area. Uh, um, uh, where where they put uh, in in the sort of uh, in the sort of manifesto in which they characterize what they call their, uh, the, uh, the the genocide of of their mm -hmm. of the African American uh, population, uh, uh, they they say it comes it comes uh, as much from uh, and I quote inadequate housing, the barrel of a pig's shotgun, or from inadequate medical attention. So those three things are. Uh, at the same level in this in this declaration, and um, and again, one being a little bit more spectacular than the others, but mm -hmm. maybe also because of that, the others being a little bit more uh, 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 how to say having such a heavy inertia in their violence, they're right. unfolding, right? Right. Mm. Yeah. No. I um. It's uh, the, that's that's very that very well put. And and I you know going back to where we began with the social health. This is precisely the point that they understand all of these things to be interrelated and interconnected, inextricably interconnected, right? So the housing piece, the medical piece, and the violence. So and and you know they didn't un understand them as separate things. And I think that we get. Um, quite used to understanding medical care as being distinct from, you know, we, particularly in the U.S., as just like it has nothing to do with housing, you know, or, we, or so we think, um, or the, the sort of the, whether or not people live in violence inflicted by police or their neighbors, you know, that this has nothing to do with health care, quote unquote. Um, so, yes, I mean, I think that the Panthers, um, you know, were, you know, partly they were engaged in a conversation around genocide. And the conversation around genocide, on the one hand, comes out of a longer conversation amongst activists, not only African-American activists, but um, left activists in the United States about, uh, because it is a frame of thinking about forms of neglect, both deliberate and benign uh, neglect, and how this neglect could, um, uh, could be um, sort of rectified or challenged by 
um, becoming part of, you know, by appealing to sort of UN declarations against genocide. So these start, you know, this starts in among blacks, black activists in the 1920s. There was a way in which, um, you know, and, and you recall that at one point the Black Panther Party in their founding 10-point platform asked to be made a, um, a UN plebiscite. So the party is in part looking to another kind of seat of authority to which they can sort of bring their um, uh, bring their protestations. And so the genocide piece is partly that. Um, and certainly it's also partly about the black politics of that period that really decried and, and you know, identified genocide, um, particularly with regards to reproductive rights politics, politics around the reproductive rights. And this was a time in which um, there were lots of uh, accounts um, in the press and in people, you know, people's oral histories and their own personal experiences about um, black women, Latinas being... Um, uh, experimented on using early birth control pills in Puerto Rico, for example, using early um, uses of Depo-Provera, which is an inject injection um, to stop birth control, and then, of course, um, forced sterilization and compelled sterilization. So genocide it has kind of all of this resonance. But there was certainly um, an awareness, and an awareness that, and I think we're we're getting better at talking about this in social theory. So we have, um, you know, someone like Ashil Mbembe talking about necropolitics moving out of Agamem's work on bare life, right? But I think one can easily say that the Panthers identified this before, right? You know, so and so what they're identifying with sickle cell anemia um, is the total abandonment by, abandonment by the state, is the, the creation of black people as bare life, right? Um, and so they identify this by um, looking at um, based on an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association, the funding disparities um, uh, but, uh, between uh, genetic diseases that are more likely to inflict black communities and those that are li more likely to inflict other communities. And there's like, you know, a hundredfold difference or something. It's a quite profound um, difference where sickle cell anemia was getting about $100,000 a year and other genetic diseases were getting, you know, a million or millions of dollars a year. And so... There was a way in which, you know, in the in the end of the book, in the epilogue, I write about um, uh, a member of the Black Panther Party in New Orleans who um, talks about the, you know, uh, the arrival of Hurricane Katrina, kind of a, a natural and an unnatural disaster, and his observation that, you know, they just meant us to leave us here to die, you know. And so I think that we're more familiar, we, you know, we're more, Katrina was sort of made that really acute, but I think four decades before, the pa pa Black Panther Party really understood that they, they you know, the state, um, police authorities mean to kill us, right, through this explicit violence, or, leave, or mean to leave us to die. Um, and they were fighting on both fronts, actually. Um, and I think it's only coming to be appreciated because um, it becomes, it's become more commonplace the way that kind of um, social violence uh, happens, the, this, this neglect to this genocide, slow genocide, slow killing. Mm -hmm. And um, and the, the, the slow killing is also, is, uh, as I was pointing out a little bit earlier is you 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 put that into into uh, uh, also in perspective with uh, another uh, medicalization method mm -hmm. which is and and uh, which is uh, a little bit more active let's mm -hmm. say mm -hmm. and you you talk about the center for the study in reduction mm -hmm. of violence at the university of california at los angeles that was uh, created in 73 yes that's right uh, uh um and basically, it was a sort of um, uh, self-claimed scientific uh, uh, center that would that would study the the 
the the biology of violence and uh, and uh, on things as diverse as uh, 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 of the violence that I mean their I'm sorry their their subject of experimentation would would be uh, as much. Uh, uh, convicts and mm-hmm. uh, and uh, if I read you right, uh, also uh, uh, women experiencing their menstrual menstrual cycles. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, uh, mm-hmm. the, there's the list is long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but so so uh, in that case, there is a, there is a uh, kind of clockwork arranger experimentation yes. Uh, yes. that's that's uh, uh, quite scary. Yes, uh, uh, directly on the on the on the sometimes uh, involving surgery on the brain, mm-hmm. and that um, uh, once again I am I'm citing your book, but um, that would propose uh, basically deals to uh, to prisoners to uh, maybe uh, uh, make their conditions of of uh, of, uh, of life in prison a little bit more uh, comfortable. If they would accept such a thing, and then uh, I don't have the quote with me here, but I remember you wrote something like, uh, uh, at some at some point, it's it's no longer a choice because obviously, so anyone would would uh, would accept would accept those conditions uh, despite their uh, outrageousness. Um, so c- could you maybe tell us a bit more about the, the what you call the politics of knowledge in reaction in resistance to this uh, to this type of uh, to this type of pseudo scientific uh, sure. medicalization sure. of those bodies? Yeah, so I think that the Panthers were really good at using a lot of different strategies. So you know they had a uh, different tactics, um, and and I think you know obviously when they were trying to stop police harassment, it was a kind of in the face with guns, you know, meet guns with guns kind of strategy. Um, and with regard to the Center for the Study and Reduction of Violence, or I'll call it the Violence Center at UCLA, they really had to use a different strategy. And they were very, um, I think, nimble and adept at using the strategies that worked. Um, as I talk about, so the book, The Idea of the Politics of Knowledge, I take from a sociologist named Lily Hoffman, who writes about sort of professional um, uh, activism, sort of amongst urban planners, for example. Um, she has a book called The Politics of Knowledge. Um, and I use that to both go back in time and to go forward to talk about the Panthers. And one of the arguments that I make is that, you know, uh, you know, the group that we might largely call black health activists, um, by necessity, because so much of the claims about black bodies were in the camp that we might call sort of scientific racism. They were claims about sort of inferi- the inferiority of black bodies. And that health activism could, for black communities, you know, they almost didn't have the luxury of just wanting to provide services, that they also had to always be combating all of these narratives and stereotypes about what it even was to sort of be or have a black body. And so um, the Violence Center, I think, continues in a longer legacy. You had, you know, people like W.B. Du Bois and um, uh, writers at the NAACP who, who also wrote for The Crisis, the NAACP's magazine, variously across the 20th century, sort of really railing and arguing against forms of scientific racism and these theories that sort of attributed um, inferiority to black bodies. And so by the time you get to the late 1960s and early 70s with the Violence Center case, um, you have the Panther Party taking up this this strategy. And so for me, in this instance, the politics of knowledge is them understanding that 
that the work was not to let the center become established and then fight it, that the work was a preemptive strategy to prevent it even from coming to being, which they successfully do, and one that had to prevent it from coming to being by attacking the very claims that it was making about the work, right? So by attacking the very sort of research protocols that very established, and in some cases, very famous scientists were making, the very assumptions um, that the scientific research proposals were making. So it was a pretty bold and audacious um, uh, you know, confrontation on the part of the Black Panther Party. And I think it's also, you know, useful for today because certainly they had, they had allied themselves with many medical professionals. So, you know, and, and middle, many uh, scientific researchers. So they had an affiliation with John Beckwith, a geneticist who still teaches at Harvard. Um, they had some, um, uh, you know, affiliations with Linus Pauling, who um, was on their advisory board for their sickle cell anemia research. But in the end of the day, they weren't scientists. And so it takes, you know, a, a, a quite a lot of courage to tell scientists that they're doing their science wrong. Or moreover, as the case of the Panthers with regard to the Violence Center, that the very premises, the premises of the science itself was wrong. And so the Black yeah, Panther... I, I'm yeah. sorry, I would almost argue that, that the only claim, you, that the only argument you can have with a scientist is to, to, to challenge the very axiom of the science, sure. because that's the only kind of thing that you cannot prove within, within science. Right, right. So right. If, you, if you attack at the foundation, you yes. both have a legitimacy to do so, yes. and you actually might be successful. Yes. No, I think that's what they figured out. But it's interesting. I mean, by comparison, certainly, and as, as a younger man, Du Bois tried to do the 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 tried to challenge science on the terms of science, right? Mm-hmm. So he tried to do sociology better than other sociologists, and he tried to think about scientific topologies as in ways to think about black people in a way that was more inclusive, less racist, and these sorts of things. And I think, you know, not I think, but certainly we know by Du Bois's own voice that later in his life, he, you know, he ends up exactly where you suggest, Leopold, with, with that you have to have different premises. There's a whole different kind of epistemology and a different politics that's at stake. And so I think the Panthers got this. They were smart. They worked with smart people. And, um, you know, they effectively articulate another theory of why there's violence in U.S. society that comes out of the influence of some, like a writer like Frantz Fanon on their work, um, mm. that comes out of their own experience dealing with violence, that comes out of their critique of colonialism and the Vietnam mm. War and the violence that's going all around and, you know, American cities, that the violence that the federal government and U.S. the U.S. Army and Marines and Navy are um, promulgating um, in different societies all over the world. Um, and so, but you also see this, you see this politics of knowledge piece then again as part of their... Um, sort of practice of social health, because part of what the implication was of this of the study of this um, uh, the violence center, the center for the study and reduction of violence, was that these social problems, social phenomena, social issues could be atomized and isolated in the body, that they were biological problems, right? Whether it was, you know, are women um, more violent, more prone to violence, um, you know, just before they're supposed to have their menstrual periods or just after, you know, or whether it was, uh, you know, are, um, uh, you know, formerly incarcerated people, incarcerated people, black and Latino boys and men in Los Angeles who have never been incarcerated. Um, But, you know, the implication of this kind of research is that they're born criminals and it's only a matter of time, you know, before that kind of is borne out. Um, uh, You know, so that that these ideas were that somewhere in the body, in the biology, sort of lies the 
both the, you know, both the problem and the solution. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the social health frame of the Black Panther parties, their politics of knowledge, both, you know, attacked the very foundations, the very premises, um, and also the social health piece allowed them to not only just critique, but provide a different explanation um, uh, about why there was violence in society. And this explanation, in turn, sort of indicted the federal government for the its role that it played in violence, both in local black communities and in the world more generally. Hmm. Yeah, and we know how how science have been uh, have been actively uh, taken part in in the in the racist uh, theory and uh, sometimes even. Uh, putting itself as a, I mean, con considering human bodies in the, in terms of uh, almost in in the same way you would do in zoology. Sure, sure. Yes. Uh, I'm I'm thinking in particular of uh, Sarah Barkman mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and how how this uh, this South African uh, uh, body was uh, exploited in any in any possible way uh, under colonial conditions. But the last one. Being the least, uh, probably the least uh, uh, spectacular one, let's say again, and uh, and uh, the film of uh, Abdelashish Kachish uh, shows that the Black Venus, uh, but but actually that might the scientific uh, uh, the scientific uh, uh, the scientific uh, violence in the universal it tries to uh, to reach is certainly the the most violent one because because pre because of this uh, pretension. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's, a, yeah, Sarah Bartman, Sardi Bartman, the Venus Hottentot. Yeah, it's part of a longer sort of uh, tradition and history of thinking about black bodies, kind of, as you say, as as zoology, but also as, I mean, fundamentally not human, right? Um, uh, moreover, so that they could be, um, she could be carted about, taken from her home. She could be displayed both in life and in death. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, that yeah. she's like uh, uh, sort of notoriously, I think, in some... Uh, you know, pieces of her body were in, um, in a museum or something, ethnol ethnological museum in Paris yeah. or something like that, you know. Until so, 2006. Yes, yeah, so, um, you know, I, I can't even, it's hard to even wrap my mind around that. I mean, we don't, that's not something that we do to humans. That's not some, I mean, and there's something that, in fact, people put their lives on the line so, so that we don't do it to mammals or other type, or of animals or yeah. other living creatures at all. So the kind of barbarism of that in some ways can only be for me even fathomed if you if you unless you just think she's not human right mm -hmm. i mean um and so um and so that's the the legacy that you know i think unlike i mean certainly with an organization like act up and given the you know the violent scientific violence around um homosexuality and sexology and you know that certainly there's there are similarities but i think even act up as activists didn't have to contend with a 200 plus year legacy of um, total dehumanization. Uh -huh. um, and so that the Black Panthers health activism, uh, you know, does the social service work, but is always rubbing up against and challenging and having just to contend with um, the fact that black people historically um, in this country and globally were thought of as not human. Mm -hmm. um, and so That means if you're thought of as not human, it means that you don't feel pain. You're not supposed to have health care. Your your body is more likely to be um, deemed as being mechanistic rather than kind of holistic. Um, 
there was, uh, you know, I, early in the book, I, I talk about the, the history of, of slavery um, and uh, the, the historian Charlotte Fett uses this term soundness to talk about the well-being, quote unquote, well-being of slaves. And it was really about, was not about whether or not they were healthy. It was certainly not about whether um, uh, and bondsmen and women could be uh have health in the full kind of embodiment of a, of a definition like the World Health Organization, but it was quite literally like, can they still labor? Mm-hmm. And even if they don't feel well, and even if they're missing a limb, can, can whatever is left, can that mechanism, that robot, right? Because yeah. um, I think what As, Asmanov creates the, the word robot and it means slave or something, uh, um, you know, can that body still labor, mm-hmm. whether or not it's a human body? Well, in the case of slavery, I suppose that the individuality, the individual uh, vital vitality, does yes. not matter as much as not the, at all. The, the, the mass of it. Yes. The, the, it almost considered as a statistics of what which labor can be accomplished. Sure, sure. Um, but uh, may, maybe let's let's go back to the to the um, to the clinics of the of mm-hmm. the Black Panther mm-hmm. parties, and in particular the one you're looking at are are in uh, in the Bay Area. On the on the west coast of the United States, um, uh, um, something I was interested in is the fact that they're not just clinics; they're they're more a center for uh, uh, health, but also um, uh, food banks and, and employment uh, assistance, and also uh, some sort of uh, political schools. Mm-hmm, almost, mm-hmm. Um, could could you maybe describe describe them for us? Sure. Yes. I mean, so the the clinics looked lots of different ways, and the party um, the party could, uh, leadership in 1970 mandates that all chapters of the Black Panther Party have to have medical clinics, but the, the leadership doesn't provide any funding to do so. So the, the Panther clinics looked lots of different ways, but what they shared in uh, all t- you know across the board was this ethos that. You know, the, the clinics were supposed to be a kind of uh, home base or like a, a site for a kind of home base for organizing. Um, and given how the Black Panther Party thought about health as being more than just about mere biology or sheer biology, um, you know, the clinics often did a lot of other work. So they were often they were often storefronts. So they were sort of on a high street and people could walk by. Sometimes they were next to maybe a chapter headquarters. Sometimes they were incorporated or part of a chapter headquarters. Um, they always had what they called patient advocates there who helped people with housing and, um, you know, if they had difficulty with police harassment, access to, to um, uh, food and clothing as was necessary. Um, they were sites where people, as you said, did political education. Even if there was another site, if there was a school or a chapter headquarters where people might do political educations, the clinics were places where people did this as well. And they were places that were, I think, particularly conducive to it because clinics are places, um, you know, even community place clinics where people gather and wait, you know. Um, Mm. And so someone might go to the headquarters and sort of, you know, get a flyer or something, but it's not necessarily where people might just gather. Um, and I think, you know, families, children, a mother will bring a child and a father, you know, like pe- people are more likely to gather. And so they became the clinics, um, you know, at least dual purpose, but much multi-purpose kind of uh, physical sites uh, that were important for the overall organizing work and the kind of work of social transformation that the party was trying to do. And, you know, sometimes they had, you know, the Seattle Clinic, I remember, um, 
the photographs and from interviews had at one point had sandbags in the windows because they'd been attacked by police, you know, and sometimes they had guns, but they would also have cans of groceries and they'd have a rack full of coats for people who needed coats and they would run, you know, sometimes out of the clinics, you know, a free bus service that would take seniors to get health care or to, to a senior center or that might take um, families of uh, who had loved ones who were incarcerated and who were, were upstate or out of the outskirts of any particular city to that place. So they were really kind of the, the, the kind of skeleton, the kind of the backbone of um, not only the Panthers' health activism, the, uh, but the clinics were also the backbone of the kind of broader community service vision um, that it, the party had for its organization and for the, the bigger society that they were trying to, to move towards, the, you know, the better society. Mm. And um, you, you mentioned that those uh, those clinics had to find their own uh, their own uh, had to define their own budgets and uh, and you you're talking in the book about the logistics of how they might acquire uh, equipment and and um, uh, mo most of which well most I don't know you'll tell me but mm -hmm. some of it uh, coming from donations from uh, 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 other uh, medical centers that might be in solidarity with with the Black Panther mm -hmm. Party. And you, you even have this uh, this anecdote of the of the of the Woodstock uh, the Woodstock festival mm -hmm. uh, the equipment that was used there that was uh, eventually uh, donated to the Harlem chapter. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, can you describe a little bit this logistics or sure? Yes, I mean I think the logistics from my impression from talking to members of the party who worked on the health activism is that they pulled it together any way they could. And so you know I think logistics is is a word that. Um, suggests a kind of systemization that didn't exist. It was mm -hmm. very, you know, kind of catch as catch can to use an American, Americanist, the American phrasing. Um, so, you know, they worked also, often they worked in solidarity with other health activists of the period. So for sure, like we know in, in Berkeley, that the Berkeley, the George Jackson, which was later called the Bobby Seal Free People's Clinic, medical clinic, um, you know, had a pretty substantial pharmacy. And for this pharmacy, they um, solicited medical donations from medical supply companies. They also, all of the clinics were run with the, the volunteer labor of, you know, doctors and nurses and medical students and medical technicians and, um, uh, uh, you know, people who worked in hospitals and often had access to samples and things that hospitals would throw out that other places keep. So, um, you know, even today, U.S. hospitals throw out, you know, a scalpel after using it often rather than um, uh, uh, rather than sanitizing it and using it again. You mm -hmm. know, we kind of use things once. So there was equipment like that, but there were also just drug samples and things like that that just didn't get used. Um, so a lot of that came back to the clinic. So there were donations from people um, both members of the party and people who were, were allied with them working in the clinic who had access to such things. Um, Dr. Tolbert Small, who was uh, who's a physician and still in the Oakland area, had a regular sort of loop that he would go in the Bay Area to medical supply companies and seeking donations to the party. Um, and so, you know, sometimes they were able to get use um, monetary donations to buy things that they needed for the clinics. Um, sometimes they stole things. Um, so, uh, um, uh, um, Elaine Brown tells me, told me a, a, an account about um, one time going with another member of the party to the USC Medical Center in Los Angeles, and they were going to, um, I think they had gone to see this, one of them maybe had a minor 
kind of medical, you know, something that they needed to see somebody about. And they ended up sending in the, in the emergency room, waiting room for a very long time. They finally get into the triage room and at this point had been sitting there for a long time. And they're just like, we can take all this stuff back to the clinic. So they take all the cotton balls and the tongue suppressor, you know, anything that's in this triage room, they start putting in their bags and they take out of the room. And then they're walking out of the hospital and uh, they, uh, Elaine re- recounted to me, um, and Elaine Brown was the, the first uh, female to be a chairperson of the Black Panther Party um, in the early 1970s. So she recounts to me that on the way out, one of them sees a wheelchair and they're like, well, let's take the wheelchair too. We don't have a wheelchair at the clinic. And so uh, one of them gets in the wheelchair and they want it, the other wheels them out. And uh, uh, if I'm recalling correctly, they were in a kind of hot rod car. So the, 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 the doors were sealed shut. It was a kind of, uh, a kind of high performance car. And so they're go heading towards the car, wheeling down and someone kind of shouts behind them. And I think they're able to collapse the wheelchair and shove everything in the car and kind of get in the car and get away just in time. So they had those kinds of capers to get mm. things. Um, they also did, and you know, we know this from Thomas, Tom Wolfe's book on the Black Panther party, which I think is, you know, accurate to some regard and, and just, you know, inaccurate in other ways. But I think, um, uh, Tom Wolfe does capture, um, the allure that the Black Panther Party, um, had, or, or the fact that they were, uh, that they, uh, the allure that the Black Panther Party had for a lot of kind of left elites, particularly in Hollywood and entertainment, both in, in entertainment in the U.S. and, uh, I mean, in Los Angeles and in New York City. And so, um, I certainly, you know, they had parties in New York City, of course, like the famous Bernstein party that Tom Wolfe writes about where they get money. Elaine Brown tells me that they used to do Sunday brunches in Beverly Hills and they would go and, and raise money that way for the party. Um, so there were those sorts of things. And then there were, um, as you said, uh, other kinds of donations. So, um, yeah, so as I, the Roz Payne, the documentarian of the Black Panther Party, among other things, um, uh, recounted to me that uh, after Woodstock, they had, you know, all of these medical tents and medical equipment, be, you know, um, and that they didn't know what to do with it and decided to drive it to the Panthers in, in Upper Manhattan. So that, you know, that was the case as well. But it's also that, you know, these donations that were going from, you know, one clinic to another were often... Um, uh, one of the ways in which the the party was attacked. So, you know, the health activism was a little bit different. It wasn't the medical self-defense was different from the self-defense against police harassment, right, Where, in which the police could um, justify, in quotes, you know, shooting back, killing members of the Black Panther Party. If people are just trying to, you know, provide health care, it's harder to justify a kind of whole full assault, although they did, right? So part of what happened when when part of what happens when Fred Hampton is killed, is murdered in Chicago, is that they destroy the clinic, they destroy a lot of the equipment, and probably the biggest and most successful Black Panther Party, People's Free Health Clinic, is is destroyed when when Fred Hampton is killed. Um, but in Los Angeles, uh, you know, I one of the members of the party I interviewed um, told me about how uh, some clinic equipment was being donated to them from another clinic that was closing down on another side of town and that the the police followed the van sort of from the other clinic to the Black Panther Clinic and then when the van got in front of the Black Panther Clinic sort of um, confiscated all the equipment and the Los Angeles Clinic also before on the eve of its opening um, the uh, LAPD came and raided the clinic and you know and they would raid and kind of crush things, destroy things, turn things over, spray things with water, so making um, the facility and a lot of the supplies um, unusable. So um, 
so the logistics of the equipment of the clinics or the logistics of the clinics were um, very complicated. And, and the fact that the Panthers were even able to pull it off to the extent that they were is actually quite extraordinary. If you look at the one hand, the repression, on the other hand, the lack of support that they had from the central headquarters to provide these things, they were really, in some ways, I think, you know, there's an argument to be made that the clinics were the most um, kind of local grassroots manifestation of the Black Panther Party's politics. Because in some regards, you know, that the the kind of vanguard nature of the Black Panther chapters meant that you had a kind of few leaders in the human in the community who wanted to start a chapter and they'd start a chapter. You literally could not start a Black Panther clinic without the cooperation of a lot of people, right? Mm. And so it was really I think these were the the really epitomized the sort of manifestation of both local needs, the ways that they look differently. So for example, the Winston-Salem, North Carolina chapter had a free ambulance service as part of their clinic work um, because this community needed ambulances. Um, So how they responded to local needs and the way that they pulled together local resources and uh, local social networks to staff them. Mm -hmm. I see. Well, and uh, maybe as a a final question, I'd like to make uh, an opening to uh, the situation now it is. Mm -hmm. uh, And maybe for people who don't live in the U.S., they, they might not realize that how incredibly criminal is still their, their healthcare system that is, uh, uh, that, that is um, completely uh, crystallizing uh, their, the social fracture between, the, between their, their, their higher social classes and the lower one, uh, uh, one being frankly minorita- minoritarian and the other uh, overwhelmingly majoritarian. Uh, um, and how how in uh, in this country there's there there like just taking an ambulance is already uh, uh, an uh, well I was going to say an hemorrhage but that's that may be a, an unfortunate metaphor but uh, how how it how it puts you into debt uh, immediately uh, and uh, that's yeah something we don't uh, we don't necessarily always realize when we're when we're out of this country. Um, but uh, since since these so social classes uh, in the U.S. are still extremely uh, uh, related to the to the to the to their own uh, racialization as well, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, can you can you maybe tell us a little bit if there might be some uh, forms of resistance that are always also uh, organized nowadays uh, against that? Or, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So I mean. Y- you know, it's astonishing, actually, the, the, how poor healthcare access, um, how poor there, the health, how, how little access there is to healthcare um, in the United States. But um, I think we need to understand, and this is not, this is without, you know, myself being allied ideologically with the Black Panther Party, or you know, but to understand that there was a lot of ideological work to make it possible. So there's the, you know, the larger dismantling of the social welfare state, but the, um, but we also know from some great reporting and uh, historical research from the New Yorker um, writer and Harvard professor Jill Lepore that there was a kind of ideological campaign that starts. Um, Uh, in California in the 1950s during the Cold War that basically equated any kind of assistance for healthcare with communism. So it became um, 
intertwined with the Red Scare and with the Cold War. And so by the time you get to, you know, the, I remember there was um, and the, the uh, actor, African-American actress, uh, Anna DeVere Smith, does these one-woman shows. She did one called Twilight. That was after the, um, the, the, uh, after the, the Rodney King, the um, beating of Rodney King and the riots in Los Angeles that followed that. And she did one more recent 1992, right? Yes, in Los Angeles, yes. And more recently, I think maybe six or seven years ago, she did a, a performance that's only her, but doing on a lot of different characters, like the one that she did about Los Angeles in 92 called Let Me Down Easy. And she has uh, talked about and published some of the interviews. And so many of the interviews are people saying, I don't have health care insurance and... I don't have any savings, um, but if I, you know, if I get sick and I can't afford it, then I just die, and that's just the way it is, right? And it's really the successful outcome of this ideological campaign of the last sort of 60 or 80 years that just says that we are not, there's not a commons. We're not all in it together. That's been the exact opposite of the social health idea that the Black Panther Party was trying to sort of fight for and assert. Um, that you're in it by yourself, and if you can't afford it, you should die. I mean, that's just extraordinary to me whenever I, I think about it. And, and you know, you're exactly right about the debt of an ambulance and about, uh, you know, that one gets into to get an ambulance. And to need an ambulance is to really be at your most vulnerable. And the fact that you would, one might, consideration might have to be that this is going to cost me $5,000 um, is just astonishing, mm. you know. Um, and so, uh, so... Yeah, so there's there's so healthcare today. There's a lot. There's lots to be done, and I think it's you know, uh, you know that Obamacare, given the ideological context that had been created over the last eighty years or so, is astonishing. You know that it was it was even able to get through, and it's very much an insurance based, capitalist based sort of plan. But the fact that we have anything like it is, I think, quite extraordinary. Um, even though I would have personally, politically hoped for a lot more and something that was single payer or, you know, universal health care. Um, and so where's the forms of resistance today? I mean, so much of it goes back to um, things that the Panthers were doing, actually, mm -hmm. you know. So in the United States, we have increasingly, you know, so it's happening everywhere, but particularly in the United States where the social welfare state has been so made so anemic and has been shrunk so much that we have a layer of, you know, a growing layer, layer of civil society and NGOs who do things around healthcare and they do really great work, but it's the work that they're doing because the state's no longer doing it. And one of these organizations is an organization called health leads and um, they, you know, work with doctors to get people access to healthcare. But one of the things that the physicians are allowed to do is write prescriptions for social needs. So the doctor can say, your blood pressure is too high, you know, you should, I'm going to give you this medication, um, but it's maybe also too high because your family is food insecure and because, you know, you're a month behind on your rent and you're, you know, you're at that risk of being homeless. Mm. And so the doctor can prescribe, you know, assistance with health care, um, you know, some support for better food or more food and literally can write a script for it. And then someone else in the organization helps to sort of fulfill this. Mm. That's what the Black Panthers were doing with their patient advocates in their clinics, you know, 45 years ago. Um, so uh, it's important to remember that. And then I think another form of resistance that also looks like the Panthers' work is the Occupy movement of recent years. I mean, one of the incredible things, just, I mean, the whole thing was incredible, just the, the, the viral nature of it and um, the power of it. Uh, but 
was that, you know, in the first day or the second day of a new encampment, they put up a medical tent. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was... And a library. And a library, so you know. politics of knowledge. Yes, yes. And so, you know, these communities are very clear about what the priorities are and about what a social community needs to provide to each other. Mm-hmm. From the very beginning, those are the top priorities, you know. And maybe some of the people were trying to make and putting up health medical encampment so soon in the evolution um, of a new um, uh, occupation making a critique of medical care of, of you know the lack of medical care some people probably were but I actually don't think that's the only reason I think that there's a kind of instinct that's like we need this right we need this for the people who are going to be in the occupation and we need this all around and you know those I followed most closely those kinds of stories like the stories around the formation of the medical tents and one of the most heartbreaking things is that so many of the people that were being seen were not people who had been taken ill in the encampments they were people who had just had not had health insurance who had not seen a doctor or a nurse for 6 10 mm-hmm. 15 years right and uh you know and so the encamp you know medical uh, tent work i think you know we might also think about obviously not only in the panther tradition but as being part of that tradition as well so you know i think it's um a kind of there's a kind of self determination around healthcare that is one challenge to the kind of health challenges we face today but what's i guess encouraging is that it's not self-determination of a solo person, right? It's a kind of a community-based self-determination like the Panthers Clinic. So these encampments, these um, uh, these occupations were communities of a sort. And then I think there might be things that can do, one can do within the system. So in, the, um, in a lot of local communities here in New York City, I know that there were a lot of activists who were engaged in training themselves and others and how to figure out how to maximize the benefits of Obamacare. And that meant learning how to register people, learning how to sign people up, learning the right ways to sign them up, learning how to translate to them what, you know, kind of rights and responsive, you know, what things they, benefits they could, um, rights and benefits they could get as a result of being enrolled in various forms of, of Obamacare and actually getting people increasingly, you know, part of the activism, I think in this legitimate form of activism is showing people how to use it, you know, Mm. um, you know, where do you go? How do you, how do you, you know, um, uh, advocate for yourself in these spaces using these new insurances and these sorts of things. So, you know, a lot, a lot remains to be done. Um, but I think, to a limited degree that that the success of Obamacare, you know, hopefully um, offers some uh, uh, medical um, care access, health care access to people to, that didn't have it before. You know, what it doesn't do is in any degree fix the broader issue of medical discrimination. I mean, having health care insurance does not mean that the clinician you see, the doctor you see, or the nurse is going to treat you well, can treat you humanely, going to respect what you say, listen to your symptoms and respond in, you know, a way that you feel good about. Um, you know, that's a larger problem of the larger society. Uh, so, you know, I think it would be a mistake to think about Obamacare as any kind of panacea or any kind of, you know, like the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, right? It's a, it's an important kind of node and moment, but it doesn't resolve the 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 bigger fundamental issues about the social contract and about human rights that still remain to be fulfilled. Mm. Well, and maybe just to to add a little point to what you were saying about the occupying movement, it's interesting to see uh, uh, how, based on what you just say, uh, which I which I was able to to observe the the, the implementation of of, of uh, little little clinics. It's interesting to see how how far would the hypocrisy of the of the mayors who evicted their who evicted the sites of occupations would uh, would be 
pretending that it might be for hygiene reasons and and how uh, has this uh, I mean I, I I've wrote an article about how it might actually be very also based on their unconscious unconscious uh, fear for whatever they cannot control but contagion a kind of contagion theory exactly, yeah. yeah I mean yeah, yeah the ab- as the object the ab- general, yeah as, sure. as uh, Mary Douglas would would uh, yes see it. yes um, but uh, anyway uh, thank you very much Alandra and uh, and uh, as usual I will I will add uh, all the informations needed uh, on the page to to complement this uh, great conversation that's great these are really smart questions I mean I've been talking about this book for two years now and you sometimes you get you just say the same things yeah. over and over again but when people ask you interesting questions it makes it fresh again i uh, really well, appreciate it glad. thank you very much thank you yeah thank you for your interest i'm really honored